My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. Now, before we kick off today, just a bit of housekeeping. If you downloaded this episode between the hours of 12 and 1 in the morning Mountain Standard Time, I apologize. My initial release of this episode captured my laptop's fan that apparently was blowing really loudly and created a weird fuzzy sound, so I have re-recorded it and re-uploaded it. Now, recently, I was reading an article on how to grow your podcast. The author opened with a joke. What do you call a podcaster with an audience of just one? Successful. I hope you're laughing because I wasn't really. His point, though, was that it's really hard if you're a regular Joe like me to get a following to a podcast. So thank all of you for listening and subscribing. I now have subscribers on every continent and more listeners outside of Utah than in Utah. So thank you. Now back to the show. When I'm researching a show, I'll often visit a number of websites to understand the context of events taking place on dates around my objects. This helps place the objects and events in a relatable moment in time. Today, I want to talk about one date in particular. If you look up the date September 10th, 1846, almost every website out there covers one event and one event only. On that date, a patent was issued for the first sewing machine to Elias Howe. Elias, who was poor, had grand visions for what a sewing machine could offer the working-class Americans. However, nobody seemed willing to invest in his patented product, so Elias packed up shop and headed to England to try his luck there. When he would land in New York City three years later, after having had no success overseas, he found a large number of companies in America were selling imitation versions of his sewing machine. And this kicked off one of the first large patent wars in U.S. history as Elias Howe sued everybody. This would quickly make Elias a millionaire as his September 10th, 1846 patent won all court cases and he was declared the official inventor of the sewing machine. I wonder if that story is thrilling to anyone other than my mother-in-law, a lover of sewing machines. Now, to all these historical websites... I'd love to propose they add two more events to the day September 10th, 1846. Turns out, it was a very important date for more than just lovers of sewing machines. The first event that took place on September 10th took place at the base of the Ruby Mountains in Nevada. A party of pioneers heading to start a new life in Alta, California had just finished an exhausting trek through Utah. This large party of over 85 or more people ignored a number of warnings and decided to take a shortcut and untested route through the Great Salt Lake Basin in Utah. As this route wasn't yet blazed, they lost months and almost all of their supplies, cutting down trees and carving a wagon route through the Rocky Mountains, down Immigration Canyon, and across Utah and the Sandy Deserts. Their hard-fought work would pave the way for the church the following year and possibly save a lot of lives, but for them, it would thrust them into history books 
as probably the most harrowing story in pioneering history. On September 10th, this party would realize they didn't have enough food to make it through Nevada, and winter might hit them before they made it over the mountains. So after some long and uncomfortable conversations, they sent two riders to speed ahead with all haste to California to recruit help and supplies. Unfortunately, neither would arrive in time, and the Donner Party would get trapped in a high mountain valley and quickly run out of food. Buried under almost five feet of snow, the party would have to result to cannibalism to survive the cold months while they were stuck. Now just a quick side note, the men assigned to make their way up to the broken cabins in the spring of 1847 to collect the remains of the Donner Party were mostly made up of the remnants of the Mormon battalion, some on their way home to see their families. The choice of the Donner Party to carve through new canyons in Utah for their wagons was tragically fatal. However, it will play a huge role for the Mormon pioneers in the following year. Now, the next event that took place on September 10, 1846, was in Nauvoo, Illinois. As we've discussed to this point, almost 10,000 members of the church had left Nauvoo at this time to begin the trek west. The only people still in Nauvoo were those that were sick, too poor to travel, or those tasked with staying behind to sell the remaining church property, including the Nauvoo Temple. Altogether, there were about 600 Mormons left in Nauvoo. Now, at this point, Many non-Mormons had purchased lands and moved into the city, but the mobs wanted the Mormons out now. So after failed negotiations wherein the mobs demanded they leave immediately, over 1,000 anti-Mormons organized in a mob and prepared for war and marched on Nauvoo. They arrived at the city on September 10th, and that kicked off what would come to be known as the Battle of Nauvoo. The Mormons that stayed organized with the local non-Mormons and even used the temple bell tower as their lookout point. The mobs rolled up their cannons and opened fire before charging on the Mormons. Nauvoo's defenders responded with light cannon fire of their own, and rifle exchanges took place for four straight days while people died on both sides. Despite their valiant resistance in the end, the defenders of Nauvoo surrendered the city on September 16th. They had lost the Battle of Nauvoo. Though the anti-mobs had promised leniency, the following day they entered and ransacked the city. They forced out everyone, including the sick, beat most of the men and forced them into the river, where they made their way across landing on muddy banks with only the clothes on their backs. Over 600 members of the church were now stuck in the cold without food or shelter. In Nauvoo, the anti-Mormon mob stole everything precious and began to defile the temple and tear it apart. So officially ended the days of Nauvoo the Beautiful. Now, when church leaders in Iowa heard about what was happening in Nauvoo, they immediately organized the men available to go collect the Mormons that would be thrown out of the city without food or shelter. Unfortunately, there was a bit of rumbling to send aid to Nauvoo. Not that the members weren't sympathetic, but we have to remember that most of the able-bodied men were trekking to war with Mexico, and the rest were doing their best to organize supplies for the upcoming winter. Once again, it would take Brigham Young to drive them forward. Brigham rallied the men with an inspiring speech among the things he said was this phrase, Let the fire of the covenant which you have made in the house of the Lord burn in your hearts like flame unquenchable, till you can rise up and go straightway and bring a load of the poor from Nauvoo. 
Rescue teams would pack up on September 10th of 1846, the same day the battle broke out and the same day the Donner Party was sending help from Nevada. The Nauvoo rescuers arrived outside Nauvoo in time to rescue the members from starvation and exposure and take them back to the camps of Israel. So you see, September 10th was an extremely important day, and not just for sewing enthusiasts. Now back to Brigham Young. His words invigorated the rescuers. Brigham would need to draw upon that strength again here shortly, for it would be his only canonized revelation that would fortify the members of the church to finish this historic trek and make it home to the Rocky Mountains. Today's object is the word and will of the Lord regarding the camp of Israel. So what is the word and will of the Lord regarding the camp of Israel, and how did it come about? First, a bit of context. In the fall of 1846, the main body of pioneers were stuck. We discussed in episodes 36 and 37 the events that led up to this. Poor planning, food shortages, and most of the men leaving to join the Mormon battalion left the pioneers scattered across a number of camps in Iowa and Nebraska. The church, however, didn't just sit around. The camps were full of action as wagons were fixed, food purchased, and plans made for the trek to take place in the spring to the Rocky Mountains. At this time, the church leaders took every available opportunity to speak with any trapper or traveler returning from the West to get information on the best routes to the Rocky Mountains. Now, I know one person whom I'm sure was just thrilled that the church decided to sit out the winter on the plains. Lil Burnboggs. If you'll remember, he was a thorn in the heel of the church for some time, even going as far as being the governor that issued the extermination order against the church. Boggs was part of a wagon train headed west in the fall of 1846. Had the church left, I'm sure there would have been a number of very awkward conversations en route across those plains. Just an interesting side note, Boggs's wagon train decided to split up after Fort Bridger in Wyoming. Half the group decided they wanted a quicker route and headed in a southwest direction through the Great Basin. That was the Donner Party we discussed earlier. Now, of all the camps the church would settle in the winter, the largest would come to be known as Winter Quarters, Nebraska. Over 4,000 members would settle at Winter Quarters. And this was a tenuous situation as the states still had a fragile relationship with the surrounding Indian nations. Add to that the location. On the swampy banks of the Missouri, With the winter rolling in and the poor from Nauvoo showing up daily, the church had to organize quickly. Bishops were called to assist with the poor and help them find shelter. But even with all this proactive work, sicknesses set in immediately due to the conditions. Over the course of the next five months, it's estimated that 723 deaths occurred among these camps. To help me grasp the magnitude of that number, I was looking at how many members were estimated to be in the four primary camps. Most estimates have it around 8,700 people, so that would mean 1 in 12 people died during that winter due to the sicknesses. 1 in 12. During these months, Thomas L. Kane visited the camp to meet with Brigham Young. Kane was the non-Mormon representative from Washington, D.C., that had helped negotiate these locations for the camps due to the church being willing to assemble the Mormon battalion. When Brigham Young met with Cain, he found him openly sobbing like a child at the condition of the members. It was tough going. Wilford Woodruff would record in his journal at this time, quote, I have never seen the Latter-day Saints in any situation where they seem to be passing through greater tribulations or wearing out faster than at the present time. 
end quote. This was especially hard on the women. Remember, many of the men had left. Most went with the battalion, but many of the men were working for money, scouting routes to the Rockies, or still serving missions. One such woman was Jane Richards, the wife of Franklin D. Richards. Most members of the church will recognize his name. Richards will play a prominent role in the church in the upcoming years when he's called to be an apostle. But in 1846, he was on his way east to serve a mission in England while his wife was emigrating to winter quarters. Just before Jane arrived, she records that her daughter, named Wealthy, had become deathly sick. Jane records this heart-wrenching note in her journal, quote, A few days previously, Wealthy had asked for some potato soup, the first thing she had shown any desire for for weeks, and as we were traveling, we came in sight of a potato field. One of the sisters eagerly asked for a single potato. A rough woman impatiently heard her story through and putting her hands on her shoulders, marched her out of the house saying, I won't give or sell a thing to one of you damned Mormons. I turned on my bed and wept. I had heard them trying to comfort my little one in her disappointment. When she was taken from me, I only lived because I could not die. End quote. This was tough and the members felt it deeply. Some started to wonder if all of this was right. How could Joseph Smith be taken like that? Was it right to follow the Twelve Apostles? Why were they stuck here like this? These conversations led some to openly question Brigham Young and his leadership. The most notable of these critics was George Miller, the second bishop called to serve in the church. Miller disagreed with how Brigham and the Twelve were running the church, and in winter quarters, he entered open rebellion leading off a small following of members from Winter Quarters to Texas, where he planned to join up with Lyman White and that splinter group. Now, quick side note, after just a few years in Texas, Miller would come to believe that Lyman White was an apostate. So he abandoned that splinter group and moved to Wisconsin to join up with James Strang and the Strangites. However, after just a few years there, Strang was killed by some of his followers, leaving Miller without a church. He would die alone without a church on his check west. Now, Miller and his group apostatized from the church in early January of 1847. With all the sicknesses in camp, the grumbling, and now the dissension in leadership, Brigham Young knew things were at a dangerous point. Something had to happen, and something did. With everything on his plate, Brigham Young said he settled down for bed on January 11th of 1847. That night, Brigham Young said he had a dream that was a revelation. According to Brigham, in his dream, he was visited by Joseph Smith. He and Joseph conversed about the difficulties facing the church. Joseph reminded Brigham that he was on the Lord's errand and then dictated a revelation that Brigham would wake up and have written down. The revelation has come to be known as the word and will of the Lord regarding the camp of Israel, and it changed everything for the Mormons. The revelation can kind of be broken up into a number of sections. The first section assured the members that it was the will of the Lord that they be directed by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The second reorganized all the groups for traveling. No group would have over 100 wagons, and each would be organized with captains, group leaders, and so on. This cannot be underestimated, as one of the problems that transpired during the trek across Iowa was that everyone wanted to be close to Brigham and the Brethren, thus clogging the roads and making it difficult to support them. Now, this wasn't going to be a problem. Along these organizational lines, it instructed all to share their supplies with widows, orphans, the poor, 
and the families of the Mormon battalion. Next, the revelation recommitted the members to live with a covenant and promise to keep all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It declared, quote, This shall be our covenant, that we will walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. End quote. So copies of this revelation were handed to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, who immediately traveled among the different camps and read it out loud. The members rejoiced. They felt they heard the word of the Lord and that he was looking out for them. It told them, quote, I am he who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and my arm is stretched out in these last days to save my people Israel. End quote. Invigorated, the members seemed to approach camp life differently. One of the things the Revelation told the members to do was, if they were merry, approach the Lord with singing and with dancing. And within days, a social was planned where the members would celebrate their lot with music. Brigham Young would state that the social was intended to, quote, show the world that this people can be made what God designed them, end quote. A beautiful quote. This revelation also seemed to change Brigham Young. He would state that he felt a tremendous burden was finally lifted from his shoulders. He felt that it was more important to stay covenant and less important to be worried about supplies. As such, his first group of trekkers going west would be limited from 300 people to 150. Brigham would tell the men to bring just 100 pounds of food per person on their journey into the wilderness, and he'd go on to say that all who had not faith to start with that amount could stay at winter quarters. So with the word and the will of the Lord regarding the camp of Israel in place, the members now organized and supply preparations finalized, the church was ready to begin the trek to the Rocky Mountains. So on April 16th of 1847, the first group of Mormon pioneers with Brigham Young and the leaders at the head began the trek west. Now, just as a quick side note, this 1847 immigration would stand in dramatic contrast to the previous year. While the initial company had traveled less than 300 miles in all of 1846, an average of a little more than two miles a day, the first pioneer company in 1847 traveled more than 1,000 miles in 111 days, averaging more than four times the distance per day over the previous year. The word and will of the Lord seemed to transform them from refugees to pioneers. Now, let's talk about the trek. The pioneers did very little trailblazing on their route, as they generally followed the route of the Oregon Trail. However, midway through the trek between Fort Laramie, Wyoming, and Council Bluffs, the Mormons invented a new device. William Clayton, who was designated as the camp historian, had probably the worst job of anyone ever. William was tasked with documenting the exact mileage between trail markers for upcoming groups, so every day for almost an entire month, William counted the revolutions of his wagon wheel to calculate the distance. Halfway through, though, William proposed using a mechanical odometer for the job. Orson Pratt heard him out and designed a device that was created by Appleton Harmon. They'd built one of the first ever odometers. This was a contraction that counted the revolutions of the wagon wheel automatically and calculated the distance. The device would be updated over the years, but aside from saving William Clayton from the worst job ever, this device calculated the exact distance between trail markers along the path west. These calculations would be used for all future map making and all travelers heading from pioneers to 49ers. Now, quick side note, I almost made the odometer the object of this episode. However, 
I felt that the revelation, the word and will of the Lord regarding the camp of Israel had a more important impression upon the members. If you want to see this initial odometer created by the pioneers, it can be found at the Church History Library. Now, by the time the pioneers reached Fort Bridger, the fort named after the legendary mountain man Jim Bridger, they'd finally need to part ways with the Oregon Trail and start a more southward direction toward the Salt Lake Valley. Luckily for them, there was a trail that had been cut for wagons just the year previous. The pioneers would take the route created by the Dahmer Party to Utah. Brigham Young and the leaders counseled with Jim Bridger at this time, who recommended the Salt Lake Valley to them, though he warned them about the frost. Also just outside of Fort Bridger, a familiar face joined up with the Mormons. He came from the west. This was Sam Brandon, the captain of the ship Brooklyn, which we discussed in a previous episode, had found the Mormons. Brandon had heard about the Dahmer party and was very nervous about the church's prospects in Salt Lake. He argued strongly that the pioneers push through the valley and go all the way to California, where the weather was more temperate and the country more fertile. Brigham listened, but said that he felt the Lord wanted them in the Rocky Mountains. Now, trekking on, on May 26th, the pioneers arrived at Chimney Rock. This would become one of the most famous trail markers on the route. At this spot, Brigham Young became concerned that the men were spending too many nights gambling, playing cards, and using inappropriate language considering their covenants. So he'd call a meeting and reread to them the will and word of the Lord revelation before recommitting them to their covenants. At this time, Brigham Young would also have all the leaders dress in their temple clothing, climb a hill nearby, and pray for the Spirit to guide them the rest of the way on their route. So on they went. The rest of the way was mostly painless for the pioneers, everyone except for Brigham Young, who on July 13th had contracted mountain fever. Brigham Young was so sick that he had to lay down in the back of his carriage and followed at the end of the wagon train. The reports go that Brigham Young almost died days before arriving in the valley. So finally, on July 22nd, the forward groups of the pioneers entered the Salt Lake Valley. The group knew that this was the place that Brigham Young was looking for, and they even went as far as going and digging irrigation ditches along the valley to flood the land and prepare it for planting. Remember how some of those Mormon battalion men saw the irrigation canals in southern New Mexico? They met up with the pioneers near Fort Laramie, and that irrigation knowledge sure helped them out now. On July 24th, Brigham Young finally rolled into the valley in his wagon. Wilford Woodruff said that they turned the wagon so he could look up at the valley, and when he did, Wilford said that Brigham was thrust into a vision. Brigham told Wilford Woodruff he'd seen this place in a previous revelation where it had been pointed out to him by Joseph Smith, and they'd finally found it. He commented, quote, It is enough. This is the right place. Drive on. End quote. They'd finally arrived at the last place they'd make their headquarters. The initial trek was finally over. On entering the valley, Wilford Woodruff recorded in his journal the following quote, This is an important day in the history of my life and the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. After traveling from our encampment six miles, we came into full view of the Great Valley or Basin of the Salt Lake and land of promise held in reserve by the hand of God for a resting place for the saints upon which a portion of the Zion of God will be built. End quote. The church was finally ready to start building the Zion of God. Now, what happened to the revelation, the will and word of the Lord for the camp of Israel? 
The Church would have that revelation canonized. It can now be found in section 136 of the Doctrine and Covenants. You can look it up online or borrow a copy from a member, or if you're a member listening, go give it a read tonight. Okay, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, episode 38, section 136, The Word and Will of the Lord Regarding the Camp of Israel. That has to be the longest title ever. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. And again, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like it, subscribe, or comment on iTunes. It really helps spread the word. Thanks again for listening. 